Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our word on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Um, thank you for being here, Charles Pellegrino. Thank you. So, yeah, and Char- so Charles, I-, I say that too because myself, I am. Uh, autistic, and I came from that world, and I understand you are as well, and and I understand um, what you go through when you have to read and write and get things out. It's it's a lot of work uh, to publish books and and um, get on radio and do all that. Believe me, I know. And uh, you're lucky because you uh, had Ian Punnett, who was probably the only decent human being over on Coast to Coast. Right, right. I mean, uh, he really looks into facts. I really like talking with him, working with him, even met him once here in New York City. Yeah, he's a great guy. I I, I had him on my show way back when I was in Phoenix, and um, when he was writing a crime book a few years back. And very, very nice man. Very nice man. I like him a lot. But um, Right. In fact, he's right now writing a book about the autism Asperger's spectrum aspect of everything so uh rather interesting book he uh asked me if i would give him an exclusive on it and i said you're the one person who will approach things with uh the sense of irony and humor and uh i knew i could count on him and even some very painful parts of my life he's shown me some of the early chapters and uh i found myself laughing so that is one hell of a good writer yeah, yeah, he is. He's a good man, and and I appreciate and that that I can see. I, I I would stay away from the rest. George Nury, I'm I'm that man's crazy, 
Uh, him yeah, and- I don't think I've ever met him or spoken with him. Uh, every once in a while, I'll see him on the History Channel for a few minutes, uh, which has now become the Ancient Aliens Channel. <laughs> and uh, I still, you know... Maybe yeah. it's better than when it was the Hitler Channel. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe they get more more press. I, there seems to be a real need for that. And well, he's he's really big with Alex Jones. Him and Alex Jones are like, uh, uh, you know, kissing cousins or something. They they do everything together. He really promotes them, and I'm just totally anti that whole thing. So, um, so what? Yeah, I've what, heard Alex Jones. I, I'm a little out of touch because I'm always working on things. I'm not familiar with what Alex Jones is. Oh, he's just all about the false flags and uh, the shootings never happened and like nothing's ever happened. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, yeah. that the bombing in uh, Boston was faked and, yeah. oh, my God. Yeah, that's yeah. the guy. So, and he Andy Hook. Him. Yeah, oh. and it, and yeah. It just in a dry. It, that drives me nuts completely. So I just uh, uh, I stay away from that. But um, I, I, you know, anyway. I, what, so now you've been attacked on a few of your books. I see, and and from what I read, um, where where did this all start for you? Like, where when was the first time you noticed? Oh that, wow! Yeah, uh, from the very beginning. <laughs> I left New Zealand to get away from that kind of court because uh, suddenly in 1982, we ended up with uh, creationists from London being put in charge of a zoology department at a major university. And uh, things got very crazy there. And, uh, you know, it came time to leave, to move on. And uh, I had come, uh, I was born in the U.S., uh, I had some family in New Zealand, I came over to visit family here, and uh, while all of that stuff was going on in New Zealand, uh, my lab was being smashed up, and I was being accused of espionage and everything under the, <laughs> under the sun, uh, I ended up, well, I had a friend who was working with the space program, and uh, I, you know, a lot of people who I knew who were working with the space program and Brookhaven National Laboratory and Grumman, and uh, hey, you know, you want to uh, work on smashing atoms and making anti-hydrogen and maybe seeing what can happen with that so that one day we can propel spacecraft to the stars, and I'm like, wow, you know, on top of going back to New Zealand where it could almost be a crime studying paleobiology and the toys here to play with were great. Yeah, you know, if you want, you can go down in submersibles and they even want to send a few scientists who can write up on the space shuttle. Well, that decided me to stay. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know. But the crazy thing was the thing in New Zealand that really got the evangelicals all lathered up was in 1982 I was talking about what eventually became the Jurassic Park recipe. Now, things have reversed in New Zealand. Last year, they actually minted a silver coin celebrating the origin of Jurassic Park in New Zealand. And that was with me uh, coming up with the recipe and also an alumnus of the same university, the actor Sam Neill, acted in uh, the first one, I think in the first two Jurassic Park films. Hmm. So now, what now? What, he also played Damien Omen. Oh, of course, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, 
they didn't like him for that. <laughs> no, no, kind of both sides uh, there. Well, so now, do you blame this then on, uh, blame is a bad word, but are you putting this toward uh, the religious, the right, the evangelicals that kind of are, are kind of pushing this? I know the truthers in the 9-11. It was an extremist branch. It was an extremist branch. Uh, I'm not like some people I know who are agnostic and atheist who think for a minute that, yeah, I don't believe religion is a kind of mental illness or anything like that. In fact, in some of the worst times, such as 9-11, I kind of envied the friends of mine who found a peace that I do not find being, I mean, as close to agnostic as you can possibly be, uh, as close to atheist as you can possibly be, and still manage to call yourself agnostic. So I kind of envy friends of mine who do find that inner peace. Right. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about your um, your book that just came out again. Uh, to, yeah, I believe it's called To Hell and Back. Yeah, the, the last right, train. right. Um, so, why, what was the problem with that? Well, the main problem, the initial problem with that book was one error. There was a few pages of the book. It had nothing to do with what was the whole subtitle of the book: the survivors look back. Uh, there was one American who had placed himself uh, aboard one of the Outer Rim escort planes, a photographic plane named Necessary Evil. And uh, the records of who actually was on that plane did not come forth until after the book came out. So uh, the wife of the man who actually was in that seat aboard the plane Necessary Evil uh, had the mission log from that, the Hiroshima mission and had been keeping it since 1945 since her husband brought it home and kept it as a souvenir. So the actual seating was not available in the uh, National Archive records. Uh, it's very common. Not many people know how confusing these flights were. And uh, during the Nagasaki mission, the two pilots of the two main strike planes switched places on the planes just minutes before takeoff so that the history books had the wrong uh, plane dropping the atomic bomb instead of the great uh, of uh, box car for many for decades the history books had the great artistas dropping the nakasaki bomb so these things happen it was an easily corrected mistake once i uh was informed that i had this mistake in the book but meanwhile there were people who, I don't know why, they wanted this book dead. They wanted uh, my career dead. It might have been some leftover from a previous book that I did. Uh, there was a documentary with James Cameron, The Jesus Family Tomb. And I remember when I was reading in the press what people were saying, it was so beyond what we really found and what the real science was. I wondered if I was looking at the same tomb but some of the people who wanted that book dead all just piled on on this book. And the publisher was overwhelmed with, for one thing, 15,000 letters from American veterans and servicemen and servicewomen threatening to burn the book in front of the publisher's offices, which is the Flatiron Building in New York, uh, burn it on YouTube if... Uh, 
the book were not withdrawn and destroyed. And I remember my agent, Elaine Moxon, she said, uh, burn it on YouTube. Well, if 15,000 veterans are going to burn the book and servicemen and servicewomen, can we get it on CBS? <laughs> and uh, it turned out afterward, do you know how many veterans actually wrote to the publisher and active servicemen and active servicewomen? Zero. It was all robo-emails, variations on six different letters. And uh, the publisher gradually realized that they were being hoaxed. Mm. And uh, you and I probably know what service, what person who has served our country would really call for a book to be banned and censored. it's, It's just, I've never heard of it. The two 509th veterans that the New York Times was quoting over and over, and NPR and uh, all these other news organizations, they were just two Internet trolls. They were never in the 509th. And James Cameron's historical researchers were able to reveal that within literally minutes. There was no fact-checking. Los Alamos physicist who was quoted, who had claimed that I was a lunatic because uh, the Japanese painted the shadow people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Atomic bombs cannot disintegrate people. One cubic centimeter of water in a person's body will be raised always. Some ridiculous number, like two degrees centigrade by an atomic bomb detonating directly overhead. All anyone had to do was call Los Alamos National Laboratory. The guy who... uh, they were quoting never even existed. They quoted Richard Garwin to me in a letter. Uh, Matoka Rich of the New York Times, she said, well, I have a letter here from Richard Garwin. He's one of the, uh, Robert Garwin, he's one of the fathers of the atomic bomb, and I have an email from him, and he says that people couldn't have disintegrated under the bomb and that you made up all the radiation effects. And I told her, I said, you have an email from him. And she said, yes. I said, I know him. And he does not write emails. He writes letters in pencil, and he insists on snail mail because he likes the personal uh, exchange of letters in the mail. And I said, uh, so the email was forwarded to me, and I said, by the way, his name is Richard, not Robert. And the Richard Garwin I know would not get his name and the speed of light wrong in the same paragraph. And uh, rather than correct, these people double down and triple down. So but finally, the book, the book was published again through uh, uh, Roman and Littlefield under Mark Selden's imprint, Cornell University. Gave, you know, the only person ever removed from the book was the one American aviator who exaggerated his war record. He was, in fact, a veteran of Tinian Island, the island from which the missions to Hiroshima and Nagasaki were sent. Uh, He did fly on one of the planes mentioned in the book, Bad Penny. In fact, he would have still been in the book if he hadn't exaggerated that one thing and put him on another plane much closer to Hiroshima on the day of the atomic bombing. So what is it about your previous works that have sort of incensed so many people? I mean, you mentioned the the book about Jesus' family tomb. What, what, what is it that you said there that 
that, that sort of incensed so many people and had them come after you in your in your works that followed? Well, in that book, there were the constant references to us claiming to have found the bones of Jesus. There was a quote attributed to me, something I never said in any way, shape, or form. Uh, bones of Jesus found, Easter canceled. Uh, James Cameron was quoted as uh, saying, oh, uh, we're going to kill Christianity. He never said anything like that. There was never any anti-Christian agenda. And if people had bothered to look at the book at our scientific publications. There was a whole sim- Princeton University symposium, uh, several dozen papers uh, published, including mine. Uh, they would see that not only uh, did we not find a skeleton of... G- they would see basically that everything we scientists found, it's consistent with a body thief, but it's also consistent with what people of faith say we should have found. The real story is quite amazing. We've got uh, documentation from three labs now that all that was ever put in the, jos- in the ossuary or limestone bone box that is inscribed Jesus, son of Joseph, were two shrouds of very unusual composition and... Uh, no skeleton, none of the trace fibers we have from those shrouds were ever in contact with a decaying body during a process of primary burial, as you see described briefly in the Gospel of John. So it looks as if a body was missing, uh, probably spirited away by one of the disciples, I doubt it could have been more than one or two of them because, uh, you know, the records show a lot of these people died pretty horribly. They weren't going to do that if they knew it was a hoax. But that a body was spirited away, these shrouds that were left on the ledge became sacred, and that's what was placed in this ossuary. Very interestingly, an unfinished ossuary. So It was a plain ossuary that had been broken and uh, the inscription, the word Jesus actually goes through part of the break. And uh, it reminds me of that passage in Matthew, also in the uh, Gospel of Thomas, one of the apocryphal texts. When I saw that it was a broken and rejected ossuary, the passage about, show me the stone that the stone cutter rejected, that is my cornerstone. And uh, that was a resonance uh, that when I saw it and recalled reading that, you know, it did bring a lump to my throat that this was someone who did exist and who practiced what they preached. The other thing that, you know, everyone just overlooked is that we do find these inscriptions of people from the Holy Family. Statistically, it is, I mean, almost certainly it was only one family. And written in Greek, Aramaic, and Latinized Aramaic. I mean, there are just so many fascinating connections. And to me, up until the Talpiatum, I really thought this family, that the whole Jesus story was uh, just a bit of Roman theater about the Dionysus cult that just grew out of control and that this family probably never existed at all. Now, to me, the message from that tomb is they did exist. These were very learned, literate people, writing in three languages, 
and that the Gospels would have been written almost as current events. I don't know, I mean, some of the miraculous events could have been added later. I don't know, people in the Gospels, people meet Jesus after he's gone, but I know in my own family after 9-11, so distraught, and that family members of mine uh, felt the presence, even saw the presence of someone who was lost in the attacks. So, to me, the the thing that I take away from it is there really did exist someone who so hated no one that from the uh, from a cross asking forgiveness even for those who had flogged him and then crucified him and you don't have to be religious to take a message from that and to look around the world today and say you know maybe there's something to that maybe that is something that our civilization should begin to live by uh friend of mine who survived Hiroshima wrote a book about all that uh, titled The Bridge to Forgiveness. So a lot so of the... A the, lot the, to think about. Yeah, so I, I, I guess what you're saying here is that a lot of the uh, pushback against that book came from, came from Christians who were upset that you were trying to debunk Christianity, even though you weren't? Yeah, and we... A lot of it came from Jerry Falwell, also who had many terrible things to say about all of us in the book. He had one of his people screaming at me, called me up at home and was screaming at me so that Falwell could get on the phone and scream at me some more uh, on the day that Falwell died. Falwell and his people were also among the troublemakers all the way back in New Zealand. It does get funny because when I wrote Return to Sodom and Gomorrah, which was a book about the archaeology of the First Testament, uh, Falwell had said something along the lines of, this book uh, had proven the existence of God once and for all. He decided he liked me then. Uh, An atheist website said the same book had disproved the existence of God once and for all time. So it's like one of those ink block tests. So, Falwell uh, was very loud against this book, and I was unprepared. I hadn't watched much of Fox News, and they put me on a, uh, with Falwell once. Geraldo uh, Rivera was uh, the interviewee on that. And I was trying to say to Falwell, read the book. We, can, we need to sit around the same table and talk about what this tomb has opened up. Uh, he was not receptive to, that, to, receptive to that. He had said, you know, I don't need to read garbage and taste it and swallow it to know that it is garbage. He had not read it, and he was proud not to have read it. He said the same thing about Darwin's universe and TimeGate almost 40 years ago. Uh so it was strange. There were people who were commenting on things they'd read on the Internet and never went back to read the original material. Well, that's just and, called Twitter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now it's Twitter, yeah. Yeah. So, so how did you identify this particular tomb as having um, such significance? 
Well, I was called into it. Uh, the tomb had been discovered in 1980, and the archaeologists who led the discovery uh, really kind of wanted it to disappear until after he died. His wife was still alive, and we were able to get her uh, first-hand account of what happened there. Then in 2004, Simka Jacobovici called me and uh, to interview me about uh, the archaeology of the eruption of Thera and what happened in Egypt and the period of the Exodus plagues. And uh, I realized pretty quickly that I was uh, meeting one of the most brilliant, one of the 20 most brilliant people I had ever met anywhere in the world. And then he decided to uh, let me know about this tomb, and he was beginning to investigate that. And the tomb that had all these names that we are familiar with from the Second Testament. And uh, I figured, okay, let me contact someone I know in Israel. Let me get a listing of all the names that are on these ossuaries, which, by the way, the people who made these bone boxes and buried these boxes in tombs, they were a minority culture in the first century A.D., uh, they were almost an outcast culture. They would have been forgotten by history completely, except for a few archaeological journals, if it weren't for the writing of the burial process, uh, the writing about it that we read in the New Testament, and that Jesus was obviously part of that minority culture, which, among other things, was not too happy about the uh, temple and the relations between Herod and uh, his family and the Roman Empire. But anyway, I thought, put a telephone directory together of all the ossuaries that we have names inscribed on and see how common these names are, because the first way of explaining away the Talpiot tomb is, okay, let's see if these are common names. And I, from what I knew, Jesus was a fairly common name, and uh, I figured I, I should be able to go home in an afternoon, and here it is, 15 years later, 16 years later, I'm still working on it. Mm. <laughs> and I've recently been called in to look at a few things uh, regarding the Torin Shroud, which also gets quite interesting. So, so what's your view on the what's your view on the shroud? On one fiber, but I, we have a new carbon date on one fiber. First, I got a call from a Jesuit, and at that time, I didn't even know there was such thing as a Pontifical Academy of Sciences. And on one part of the shroud, he pointed out, "Are you aware that the patina fingerprint from your tomb is on uh, one of the folds of the Torin shroud?" And I. I never expected to say this to a Jesuit, forgive me, but I said, you're shitting me. <laughs> and uh, we both had a good laugh, and I said, uh, okay, I will not believe that unless I see that it was published in a scientific journal before we ever published our results. And, in fact, it was, and I was sent the results, and I said, well, that's interesting, but what about the carbon-14 test? Uh, that had been done uh, in the 1980s. And I was asked, here's all the data on that, where they were allowed to 
sample the fibers from and everything. And I, and I had I was familiar with some theories that uh, it had been contaminated by bacterial growth. That you know, and uh, just untenable theories. But uh, simply that corner of the shroud where they cut out a three-inch section, gave it to the princess close-eyed about 400 years ago, rewove it in that area, and that was the only area that Cardinal Pellegrino said is expendable, and he let them test from. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And uh, should have never been in a lab. Uh, the tests uh, were, I mean, it was not, I would rather have not done the test than done from that corner of the shroud. Now, when it was done in the 80s, you had to have a whole centimeter square of uh, fiber to do a carbon-14 test. Now you only need a one centimeter long fiber, which they did have left over, and uh, New York City uh, medical examiner at the time, uh, a few years ago, he knew someone at Stanford, uh, the Stanford Linear Accelerator, and they were able to do a test on that one fiber. And uh, I was 
notified of the results that it brackets uh, about 300 years in either direction, the first century A.D. And I said, well, now you've got my curiosity. Seven more fibers from the middle of the shroud that come up with the same result, and you'll really have my attention. And uh, the one Jesuit said, well, that'll never happen until uh, Jesuit becomes pope. And we both laughed about when exactly does hell freeze over. Well, now we have a Jesuit pope, so we'll see if they allow a new carbon-14 test. Uh, some of the trace fiber evidence I still have big questions with. Uh, one of the shrouds in the Jesus ossuary was woven on a loom, uh, flax-based, uh, uh, yeah, flax-based linen on a loom contaminated with cotton. But to judge from the small samples we have from concretions in the Jesus ossuary, uh, there seems to me to be, because the torn shroud is mostly flax with some cotton, the fibers I'm looking at seem to be mostly cotton with some flax. So uh, that's inconsistent, even though other things are very consistent. The chemical history of uh, the Talpiot tomb, the tomb that has these ossuaries with these New Testament names, Matthew and Didymos, Judas, Thomas, and so on. The uh, tomb that does have these names, the first approximately 1,000 years of the chemical history of that tomb do seem to be consistent with what we have on the Torin Shroud, plus a couple or several decades of what's known as the Red Earth, uh, period which uh, during which the vapors that went into the air in the tomb and got accreted onto the surface of the shroud uh, uh, of the ossuaries, the walls, the ceiling, and just to some small possibility at least, one, the missing shroud from the Jesus ossuary may be the Torin shroud. I'd assign that somewhere about 5% probability, up to a maximum of uh, 50% probability. And of course, that will change if we do get new carbon dates from fibers in the center of the shroud. But it's fascinating stuff in any case. Yeah, it sounds so. Let, let's move on, uh, ahead just a little bit. So, you have done work on volcanoes and 9 and 11, and you seem to have attracted the ire of a lot of 9 uh, 11 conspiracy theorists. So, so you're going to talk a little bit about what you yeah, found the in terms of the Twin Towers falling? Yeah. They, the 9-11 conspiracy theorists seem to be the majority of the people that uh, were creating all these hoaxes in 2010. And, uh, in fact, the letters that the New York Times and Holt received, uh, they've been traced to three of these 9-11 conspiracy theorists. And... Uh, and they're conspiracy theorists, not just on that. Some of them say they're anti-vaxxers also, and they say that uh, Sandy Hook was fake and some pretty horrible stuff. And the faction that I'm dealing with, uh, it is an extremist faction, and, uh, I mean, they're also literally on the neo-Nazi branch of that tree. So, 
Yeah, the New York Times, uh, they do have egg on their face. Hope does have egg on its face. You know, they, they fell for that. So what's their concern? Is that you, you, they believe your work has debunked their 9-11 conspiracy theories and, and, and that you're showing support for the official story? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I've been, yeah, I've had them accusing me of having hidden the evidence of the controlled demolition of the Twin Towers and Tower 7 uh, for the Bush administration. <laughs> now, did and, you do that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> no. And I mean, yeah, there's uh, even Building 7. Uh, it's For one, it was built higher than it should have been. It was on a cantilevered foundation. And then they went in after the first attack on the Twin Towers, and they... Uh, retrofitted it, they cut through main beams, put the beams back together. To begin with, it was one of the worst foundations on a building since the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Mm. And then, not only was the building fully involved in fire after it got hit directly by the surge cloud of the North Tower when it collapsed, but there was a snakehead's effect along Vesey Street, where uh, along the north side of Vesey Street, where Tower 7, not only were cars literally uh, broiled and disintegrated by heat on the way to Tower 7, Tower 7 was hit by the snakehead's effect. It was hit also directly by the outsplash, that outsplashing waterfall-like, form you see and that was that cut 25 percent into tower seven just cutting all the cross beams along the west side of the building and then it was fully involved in fire because they had all sorts of fuel tanks in the building that were supposed to support tower seven was going to be where the emergency control offices would be if there was ever any kind of terrorist attack on New York City. So they had moved it and built it into that building after the 1993 attack on the world on the Twin Towers. So uh, they moved it to the worst place you could move it to for the situation that occurred. And the Twin Towers, I mean, to claim that I don't understand the thinking that, oh, they planted explosive charges in the Twin Towers for a controlled demolition, and variously they say that those were disguised planes, they weren't, uh, uh, they weren't planes, they were rockets or something, or they were planes, but they were controlled uh, demolition devices in the building, I don't know why you need controlled demolition if you've got planes anyway crashing into the building. And, you know, when I first, an uncle of mine said, those towers shouldn't have fallen, they shouldn't have fallen. And I said to him, uh, Uncle Tom, I can't tell you what kept them up so long. So when I was looking at it, uh, one of the things that kept the towers up was the bamboo type of design that went into them, and that the architect was afraid of heights, so vertical beams along the outside that were only shoulder-width, so that in the North Tower, when you had a crash that took out all of these central beams, you had an effect that was 
taking up the load like a Roman arch. And it was really the fires and everything that was then ignited by the fires uh, that softened the steel enough to the Roman arch could not hold. The South Tower uh, had the kind of wound that was uh, Flight 175, basically on the east side, it was almost like cutting a V out of a tree with an axe, so you didn't have a Roman arching effect. You had the upper stories trying to lean toward the east side, and in fact, that's exactly what happened. If you watch the video, you see initially it falls to one side, and then at the junction of the break, everything becomes granulation. And so you have a granulation effect where everything at that junction, basically in a way of speaking, thinks it's part of a fluid. And then fluid dynamics and gravity currents take over. And the same thing if the Titanic, when it broke, if it had been standing vertical at the moment of the break, it would have collapsed just like the Twin Towers instead of just basically sheared straight down at the break. And we see the same effect on the metal at the Titanic. And we know no explosive devices or yeah, anything like that were involved when the Titanic broke in half. Well, that'll be next. Yeah, there, there's also <laughs> conspiracy theories about the Titanic. Yes, that, that's going on, too. Uh, that uh, the Titanic was switched by the Olympic, and if you follow these sites, then you find it usually gets back to the same thing if you follow the branches backward with people saying, well, the Titanic and the Olympic were switched, and it was done for insurance purposes, and eventually it gets back to Jewish lawyers and bankers, and you know it becomes anti-Semitic. Yeah, you know, with uh, I can how many times I've had shouted in my face uh, about the World Trade Center. Go back to Tel Aviv, and you know we America attacked itself for the Zionist state, and you'll find that a lot of these sites they branch back. Even sites that uh, websites that are not anti-Semitic sites, they end up being connected to that and getting back to that. I did not even know until uh, people were shouting out against the Hiroshima book that uh, there was any such thing as a nuke lies movement. And uh, that's a pretty strange website. And you'll find the same names on that website that are also 9-11 conspiracy theories and everything. Uh, but, yeah, uh, the New York Times was actually... Uh, citing some of those very same people on the New Nuke Lies website, which claims it's a nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> and that the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were faked. And I don't know how Matoko Rich, yeah, I had said, you, how do you manage not to scroll down to do so little fact-checking that you don't scroll down a few pages and start noticing the SWAT stickers. Hmm. And uh, she was, uh, you know, she was severely demoted for all of that, but the New York Times never printed a retraction. And then when demoted, I got a call from someone at the science section of the New York Times one morning. He said, Charlie, 
don't worry about it. Uh, it's, she's gone too far this time. It's all been taken care of. Uh, and I, what are you talking about? And uh, the reporter did the most toward trashing my name, and I still don't know why. I had never met her in my life. Uh, she, after being demoted over the whole Hiroshima thing, to New York City education reporter, uh, she then tried on her blog connected to the New York Times to go after my 16-year-old son. Oh. With his name and photo and Bronx Science track team shirt and try to imply that my son was in some way connected with some kind of sexual perversion story in the Bronx Science track team which, by the way, that story also turned out to be a hoax. So then they finally fired her. So it sounds, like, it sounds like there's a lot of fake reporting out there, and it's very easy for misinformation to find its way into even, you know, news sources that you think would be uh, quite venerable. Yeah, I, I, I'm just very, very surprised that you had people in major media who were taking things off of the Internet and reporting it as news. And it still goes on. I mean, I tell my kids, if you want to get some idea of the news, really try to get close to the original sources. And if you're going to watch the news, you've got to watch MSNBC and Fox, and you'll see that they both get hoaxed all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want your analysis of the news, Seth Park and John Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. So back to that, uh, the the nuclear denialists. So what exactly are they establishing? Like, what are they saying that we've never had a nuclear bomb ever? Well, one one faction, one branch of that whole nuclear denial thing. The nuke lies movement claims the atomic bombs were fake. And they were giant fuel air bombs or something. And then you have the radiation denialist, which uh, I started having to deal with them in 2011. There was a translator in Japan who suddenly started writing letters to my agent, and she was supposed to be the translator on the Japanese edition of my book. And I have letters from her and how proud she was of my book and uh, my bringing these stories of the survivors forward and... All of a sudden, in uh, late 2011, she sent a 60-page letter to my agent trashing my Hiroshima and Nagasaki work, and especially my so-called exaggeration of the effects of radiation and Sadako, I lied about her family, you know, the story of Sadako and the thousand paper cranes and this probably didn't have anything to do with radiation, and my agent's uh, business uh, partner was buying into some of this stuff. So I wrote a 90-page letter responding to this point by point and citing scientific literature, much of it coming from our own atomic bombing survey after the war and from the hospitals in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And... Uh, of course, mine was 90 pages. It was being ignored, and finally I found the right soundbite. I said to my agent's co-agent, I said, have you noticed this 
person who's writing because she said, now you got someone from Japan saying you lied about radiation. And I said, look at her employment history. Look at the company she was a uh, uh, pu- uh, public relations writer for. Keep co. Does that ring a bell, I said to her. She was still angry at me, the co-agent. And I said, they're the owners of the Fukushima nuclear power plant that erupted and exploded in March of 2011. And, of course, there is a problem with radiation effects denial now in Japan. Mm. So, uh, yeah. It gets strange. Do you ever get threatened or anything like that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there were many threats after the Jesus Family Tomb book came out. And in fact, uh, <clears throat> in Canada, they had to provide uh, protection for one of the authors. Uh, Jerry Fowell had kind of like the old Southern gentleman that uh, Alex Haley used to write about, where they'd say that, that kid's gone a little too far. You know, whatever happens to him, and Falwell was suggesting that houses should be burned down, and then people wanted to do just that. And those of us who had Christian names were uh, given a kind of special dispensation from death threats. Uh, But uh, we were told, you know, there was a whole movement, make sure none of these people ever get books published again, and Jerry Falwell had actually said that that their careers should be finished. Jim Cameron should never be allowed to have another film out there. Uh, James Tabor and Pellegrino should never be allowed to have other books published. Tabor did receive death threats. Uh, There's continuous writing to University of North Carolina for him to be fired and such. And, of course, in 2010... You know, when I pointed out at some of these same people at Holt, they just, it was just kind of ignored. Although, one of the people at Holt, Marjorie Bramman, was the person that I had left Harper books to get away from. She was part of one of the most blood-smeared hoaxes in American history. She was part of the hoax about the firemen who looted while the towers burned the crew of Ladder 4. And the story was 100% a hoax. And what bothered me is I had been called in before uh, Languishy's book uh, that uh, champions this hoax was published. And I was asked, well, you worked in there, you worked forensic archaeology in there, uh, what do you know? And I told them what they knew. And... uh, one of the lawyers came up and said, well, the crew of Ladder 4 are all dead. No one can sue for libel. So we had some very harsh words. That w- I'll admit that was a very harsh meaning, uh, meeting. And, uh, you know, it got bad once I said, so this isn't a factual review of Languishi's book. Uh, this is really just to see what you people think you can get away with legally. And I was told, and so was Rhonda Shearer, who also worked forensic archaeology, and especially, I mean, she had all the evidence in place 
before the hoax even existed to prove that that crew did not uh, go loop uh, looting a Gap jeans store or any other store. And in fact, there were no Gap jeans or any other kind of blue jeans except firefighters' bunker gear on that truck when it was excavated from just over five stories underground on the night of December 17th, 2001. And uh, they picked on the wrong fire crew. We had clear communications that were recorded 23, almost 24 minutes from the moment they arrived at site. And one of the things I've studied is the shock cocoon event where you have tremendous explosive forces and you can have just as little as one piece of steel pointed in the right direction and it acts like the uh, point of a rocket cutting through supersonic air and the forces go around it. And on 9-11, there was a Port Authority police officer, Robert Vargas, the sole survivor of the South Tower collapse at the revolving doors within the South Tower, he was shock cocooned. He saw the crew of Ladder 4 working that uh, crashed and burning elevator and rescuing people right up to the moment they looked up when the noise started coming down, right up to last, their last seconds of life. And uh, there's a reason. I mean, the Ladder 4 hoax story got very widely known. In 2003, I was with the Russians when we did a memorial dive to the hydrothermal vents carrying their mission patch. It was a memorial dive for the crew of Ladder 4, Engine 54. And in fact, from the religious authorities in Jerusalem, I received permission to, in plastic, leave in the Talpiot tomb a prayer that someone had written and the names of that fire crew. It's a reason why President Obama, during the anniversary when he visited New York, he had lunch with the firefighters at the firehouse of Ladder 4 and Engine 54. To the Russians, the, that fire crew became the ultimate realization of the thankless job. But it was an absolute hoax, and uh, they knew it was a hoax when they published it, and the threat I received from Marjorie Bramman is that uh, I was going to pay for that. I had to have a lawyer from the Pentagon uh, Charles Petit was the only way that the book Ghost of Vesuvius got published with Chapter 10's Vindication of Four Crew intact. And then later on, National Geographic, when they were filming uh, American Vesuvius, and uh, it was a two-hour special, uh, two-hour documentary, I said, uh, I have no demands on you. I just have two requests. Can we, at uh, one part of this thing, show the truth about Ladder 4? And there was one item that I had found in the ruins that I knew someone had been wearing, and uh, it was shown on the program uh, in the hopes of finding the person, the family of that item, and who had been wearing it so that it could be returned to the family. And it was one of those strange things. We, almost everyone who worked in the ruins of the World Trade Center found something that was impossibly intact that we knew belonged to someone. And a lot of us obsessed on 
returning back to a family. That's quite the story. Um, Charles, we're running out of time. So now do you have a okay. website? <laughs> do you have a website that people can go to to find you? Uh, yes, charlespellegrino.com. I recently weathered a troll storm on December 7th. <laughs> so for some reason, the website does not come up on Yahoo. How many people use Yahoo now anyway? But you can find it through Google. It's one of the first things that shows up. Ignore what's on there on Wikipedia. I haven't checked lately. Uh, it changes a lot. People claim my dives to the Titanic were faked, which was another thing I was being required to explain in 2010. At Holt, Marjorie Bramman was saying, well, we have a letter here saying you've never really been to the Titanic, that it was all faked in a movie studio, and so they needed a letter from James Cameron <laughs> to prove that he didn't fake it. I really was at the Titanic. The accusations were they just kept piling up and getting nuttier and nuttier and nuttier. I needed letters from my family to prove that I really was Donna Clark's cousin and I was not a fake 9-11 family member. So, I mean, Ian's got a pretty good book to write. I guess so. And I keep saying, I don't know how he's going to write this and when he shows me, and I said, I'll look at chapters only to make sure the dates and names and everything are correct and to provide you with documentation and yeah you know, i've written over 30 books and he's written this book better than i could write it uh partly because i'm too close to the subject matter but mostly because he's just that good a writer yeah certainly well charles thank you for being on the show thank you you've been listening to the house of mystery radio show to find out more about our guests hosts or shows go to www.houseofmystery.com show is over for now was it as good for you as it was for me well good night this has been a production of something weird media i'll be back hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing i love that Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.